0: You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue University. I am your host, Matthew Kroll. I am the Academic Programs Manager here in the Department of Philosophy. And today, we're rolling out another talk from PatFest, which was a conference we had in celebration of the career of Dr. Patricia Kurd, who retired from our department this past spring. My guest in studio, as always, for introducing these talks, is a postdoctoral research associate here here in the Department of Philosophy. Welcome back, Michael Augustine.
1: Thank you, Matthew. Glad to be here.
0: Thanks for coming, buddy. Uh, So today's talk that we're posting was by Dr. Carl Huffman. So if you would please, Michael, introduce Dr. Huffman and his talk for us.
1: Sure. Carl Huffman is research professor and emeritus professor of classical studies at DePauw University. And the title of his talk for the conference was Pythagorean Ethics in the Time of Plato.
0: Um, I loved it. I thought it was a great talk, but it was uh, outside of my wheelhouse, to say the least. So if you would, please, for listeners, um, yeah, give some background to the talk and let us know what Dr. Huffman was exploring here.
1: Sure, sure. So it takes as its starting point Book 10 of Plato's Republic, and I think your listeners can hear a bit about what the central project of the Republic is, what kind of questions Plato is interested in answering from the previous podcast— Um, In Book 10, there are two main discussions happening. One is the ban on poetry and theater that was established earlier in the dialogue, and then the second is a discussion of the afterlife and the importance of justice. Uh And being a just person in the afterlife, this is often referred to as the myth of air. Okay, interesting. But, But Dr. Huffman wanted to focus on the Pythagorean life, again, that, that Plato describes and seems to admire in Book 10 of the Republic. And Carl starts off by arguing that this way of life that Plato is describing in Book 10 of the Republic is taken from the Pythagorean precepts by Aristoxenus. But the substance of the talk is giving an overview of of that ethical system and situating it within Greek ethics generally. One of the things I found most amazing was that according to this particular way of looking at human beings, they are by nature insolent and excessive. They live shameless and incoherent lives from which they must be saved by supervision, which imposes restraint upon them. Listeners familiar with Thomas Hobbes will see a clear parallel here. Nice. Dr. Huffman talks about uh, the precepts concerning desires, diet, sex, procreation, friendship, among other topics, and argues that it is best understood as a parallel development to the ethics of Democritus and Socrates.
0: Nice. That's awesome. And again, this was a great talk, uh, so I have to apologize now and let you guys know that there were some technical difficulties. Deep apologies to Dr. Hoffman because this was a great talk, but the mic drops out a couple of times, so just heads up. There's three or four places during this recording where the mic drops out. I think the longest dropout is about 12 seconds, but I kept it in, and though it definitely breaks up what you can hear momentarily or temporarily, at least here and there throughout the talk, um, it made more sense to keep these in than to cut them to stitch it together because then it just would have sounded very clunky and confusing. So, again, apologies to Dr. Huffman, but I don't think that'll take anything away for listeners from what was really an awesome and great talk.
2: There go. So, uh, I owe a debt of gratitude to Pat on several different levels but two I can, I can pick out. Uh, one is the, the debt that all of us owe to her of her published work, uh, in, particularly in Parmenides and in Anaxagoras and everything that we've learned there. Uh, but I owe personal debt to her just as a colleague for the way that she supported me in a number of ways, uh, particularly conferences that we've gone to together and the support she's given there. I can remember trips to France and uh, trips to Princeton, and uh, trips to uh, Texas, a particularly harrowing plane flight into uh, College Station, Texas. I don't know if you remember that plane flight with everything shaking around. <laughs> so uh, when I think back, I think of all the support that I've had from Pat over the years, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh The handout you have is the entirety of the fragments of uh, Aristoxenus' Pythagorean precepts, according to me, anyway. So you have the complete text in translation there. I'm sorry that I didn't provide you with the Greek as well. Uh, So everything you want to know about it is is there. So uh, it's well known that in all the writings of Plato, he only refers to Pythagoras once, and that's the text up there. In book 10 of the Republic, Socrates characterized Pythagoras as especially beloved as a leader in education. He then supports this characterization by pointing out that his impact as a teacher was so great that his followers still stood out among others for a way of life they called Pythagorean. Thus, when writing the Republic, 100 years after the death of Pythagoras, Plato knew of Pythagoreans in the late 5th or early 4th century who lived a distinctive Pythagorean way of life. Plato seems to know very little about Pythagoras himself, but is clearly familiar with this group of Pythagoreans. Two questions demand our attention. Who were these Pythagoreans, and what was so remarkable about their way of life? In this paper, I argue that we can answer both of these questions in much greater detail than most scholars might suppose is possible. The key figure in answering them is a pupil of Aristotle's, Aristoxenus of Tarentum. There was no figure outside the Pythagorean school who was better placed to know about the Pythagoreans than Aristoxenus. He was born around 375 BC, and the city-state of Tarentum in which he grew up was ruled for a number of years by the most important Pythagorean of the 4th century, Archytas. Aristoxenus, in fact, later wrote a life of Archytas. The biography of Aristoxenus in the Suda indicates that when he left Tarentum, he came to the Greek mainland, where he eventually became a member of Aristotle's school. Before joining the Peripatos, however, he associated with the group of Pythagoreans that he described as the last of the Pythagoreans. These included Xenophilus, who is also called Aristoxenus' teacher in the Studa, as well as a group of Pythagoreans from the city state of Phleus near Corinth. Thus, Aristoxenus grew up in an environment in southern Italy saturated with Pythagoreanism. And when he came to the Greek mainland as a young man around the middle of the fourth century, his first teachers were Pythagoreans. Beyond this deep familiarity with Pythagoreanism, moreover, there's a specific connection to the Pythagoreans with whom Plato was familiar at the time of the writing of the Republic. The Pythagoreans from Phleas, with whom Aristoxenus associated, included Phanton, Diocles, Polymnastus, figures I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, and and Echecrates. The last name figure Achaecrates is very likely to be the Achaecrates to whom Phaedo narrates the events of Socrates' last days in Plato's dialogue Phaedo. Plato explicitly tells us that this narration took place in Phileas. Achaecrates was a young man in 399 when Socrates died, but still could have been around as a man in his 60s to teach Aristoxenus when he arrived on the mainland in the 350s. It thus seems a reasonable conjecture that the Pythagoreans with whom Aristoxenus associated in the middle of the 4th century were some of the Pythagoreans whose way of life caught Plato's attention in the first quarter of that century. Thus, we can at least partly answer our first question. The Pythagoreans of whom Plato was thinking may well have included Xenophilus, Phanton, Diocles, Polymnastus, and Achaecrates. What about the second question? Can we say anything about the way of life of these Pythagoreans? Aristoxenus once again provides the key to answering this question. Given his connection to the Pythagoreans described above, it's no surprise that we have titles of several books written by him about the Pythagoreans, although none of those books survived intact. We only have passages from them quoted in other authors. Among those books, one in particular, is particularly relevant to our second question. Stobius, in the collection of excerpts that he made for his son, preserves seven excerpts from a work by Aristoxenus entitled, Pythagorean precepts. These overlap word for word with passages preserved anonymously in Yamblicus's on the Pythagorean way of life. The surrounding context of these overlapping passages in Yamblicus bears the distinctive style of the excerpts found in Stobius, so that another four even longer excerpts from the Pythagorean precepts can be derived from Yamblicus. These eleven fragments from the Pythagorean precepts never refer to any Pythagorean by name nor do they even use the name Pythagorean. Aristoxenus always reports when an unnamed they said or thought. Nonetheless, given the title of the work, there can be no doubt that the subject must be the Pythagoreans. It is significant that the plural is always used, so that these precepts are not presented as what Pythagoras himself said, but rather what certain Pythagoreans said. The fragments report what these Pythagoreans thought on a series of ethical topics. In particular, they present a series of guidelines on how to live one's life. It is important to note that nowhere in the fragments of the precepts does Aristoxenus ever cite another authority. So it does not appear that he is relying on secondhand accounts of others, but rather on what he directly heard from the Pythagoreans. Moreover, the Pythagorean precepts are presented as a unified whole. There's no suggestion that Aristoxenus reported the varying views of different groups of Pythagoreans. Instead, he appears to present one coherent set of precepts. Given what we know of his biography, the natural supposition is that these are the precepts that were presented to him as a young man by the Pythagoreans from Phileas and his Pythagorean teachers in Thus, it would appear that the answer to our second question, what was the Pythagorean way of life that Plato found so remarkable in the Republic, is to be found in the fragments of Aristoxenus's Pythagorean precepts. In the rest of my paper, I will present an overview of the ethical system found in the Pythagorean precepts. At the end, I will briefly outline the unique place they occupy in the history of Greek ethics. So what you have in your handout then are the seven fragments from Stobius, and then the four longer fragments from uh, Iambulcus, although those overlap a little bit with the Stobius fragments. <clears throat> OK. Uh, the ethical system of the Pythagorean precepts is based on a peculiarly Pythagorean understanding of human nature. According to the precepts, human beings are by nature insolent and excessive, that is, they are hubristic. In addition, they are beset by a complex and chaotic variety of impulses, desires, and emotion. So the first uh, quote up here from fragment 8 For they said that an animal is by nature insolent and excessive and shows a complex variety in its impulses, desires, and the rest of its emotions. Therefore, it is in need of the sort of superior authority and threats from which self-control and order arise. So this is a crucial assumption of the Pythagoreans about human nature. Children are naturally unrestrained and given to excess, he says in Fragment 9, but the problems do not end with childhood since human beings develop other stronger and more turbulent desires as they grow older, the desires for sex and honor. Thus, in in the natural state, human beings will be led to do shameful things by their lack of restraint. Moreover, they will not be able to accomplish anything fine or advantageous because of the chaotic and turbulent nature of their desires, which prevent rational planning. The natural state thus produces a shameless and incoherent life from which human beings need to be saved. And the Pythagoreans use the language of saving several times. They should never be allowed to do what they want, that is, what their untutored nature impels them to do. Self-control and order are thus the two highest values for the Pythagoreans. They are both fine in themselves and advantageous because they allow us to accomplish things through planning. It is therefore crucial that human beings have supervision that keeps them from excess and imposes order on their desires. This is why fragment two of the precepts asserts that there is no greater evil than anarchy, that is, the lack of supervision. Without such supervision, human beings degenerate into vice and evil. So you see fragment two up there. As a general rule, they thought that it was necessary to suppose that there is no greater evil than anarchy, for it's not natural for human beings to be saved there's that word again, if there is no one supervising them. Now, the centrality of this view of human nature for Pythagorean ethics was not introduced into Pythagoreanism for the first time in the precepts, but is a striking example of the continuity between the precepts and the earlier Pythagorean ethical system presented in the Accusmata. The acusmata are brief, usually one-line orally transmitted sayings that govern the Pythagorean way of life founded by Pythagoras in the 6th century. Thus, one of the accusmata asks the question, what is most truly said, and answers, human beings are bad. <laughs> Both the presence of this view in the accusmata and the preservation of it in the precepts surely indicate that it was regarded as the position of Pythagoras himself, Its presence in the precepts is one of the reasons that the 4th century Pythagoreans could claim that their ethical system went back to the master. It is important to note that this view of human nature is indeed distinctively Pythagorean and was rejected by both Plato and Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle did, of course, recognize that lack of self-control was a common human failing. Plato famously presents the human soul as a chariot pulled by two horses, one of which is the dark horse whose central characteristic is insolence. In the Republic, he describes human appetite as a many-headed beast. Nonetheless, neither Plato nor Aristotle sees human beings as by nature bad. In the Phaedrus, Plato has Socrates assert that his central concern is to follow the Delphic injunction, to know thyself. He sets out to determine whether he is, quote, a beast more complicated than savage than Typhon, or a tamer, simpler animal with a share of a divine and gentle nature. The Pythagoreans appear to have given the former answer. <laughs> uh, and it seems quite possible that Socrates and Plato is thinking of them here. Plato's answer, however, is clearly closer to that of the option, second option. At law 766a, he uses the same words as in the Phaedrus to assert that basic human nature is tame, haemeron. And with the right upbringing, human beings can become heavenly and gentle, but with bad upbringing can become the wildest of creatures. Thus, basic human nature is something quite different for Plato than it is for the Pythagoreans. In some ways, the closest parallels of the Pythagorean point of view are certain passages in Thucydides. In his description of the Civil War on Corsaira, Thucydides describes human beings as behaving well in times of peace and prosperity, but in the extreme conditions of war, when the order imposed by society has dissolved... Greed, pleonexia, and ambition, philotimia, emerge as the primary human motivations and lead to every form of depravity. Similarly, Pericles gives a glowing description of human nature in his funeral oration, but when the plague strikes Athens shortly thereafter, human nature is quickly revealed to be something quite different. In the face of their imminent deaths, the Athenians disregard both divine and human law and pursue only the pleasure of the moment. The general point made by both of these passages is summed up in concluding comments on the Civil War in Corsaira. This passage is contested and may be by a later imitator than Thucydides himself, but the words nonetheless accurately describe the view of human nature that emerges in the account of the plague and the Civil War and provides a striking parallel for the Pythagorean view of human nature. So the text here at the bottom. Then, with the ordinary convention of civilized life thrown into confusion, Human nature, always ready to offend even where laws exist, showed itself proudly in its true colors as something incapable of controlling passion, insubordinate to the idea of justice, the enemy to anything superior to itself. Not a bad parallel for the Pythagorean view of human nature. Here, as in the precepts, it's clear that the basic human nature quickly leads to savagery if the constraints imposed by human and divine law are removed. There is no evidence to suggest influence in either direction between Thucydides and the Pythagoreans. It certainly seems plausible, however, that the same human behavior that Thucydides observed in the Peloponnesian War was reinforced in the Pythagoreans of the late 5th and early 4th century, uh, reinforced in them the earlier Pythagorean thesis that basic human nature could not be trusted. The precept's conception of what the proper goals of our actions should be is influenced by this view of human nature. The Pythagoreans assert that we should above all aim at what is noble and seemly, and secondarily at what is advantageous and beneficial. Thus the Pythagoreans distinguish between what is morally superior and what is merely advantageous in prudential terms. They recognize both goals as legitimate, but clearly identify moral action as our primary goal. Aristotle similarly lists the noble and the advantageous as two of the goals of actions, but adds pleasure as a third. He suggests that the good person will make the best decisions about which pleasures to pursue. Similarly, before Aristotle, both Plato and Democritus had, in the words of Arius Didymus, located happiness in, quotes, distinguishing and discriminating pleasures. The idea is that we can train ourselves to take pleasure in what is fine and just the Pythagoreans take a radically different approach. Um, the precepts assert that, quote, as a general rule, we should never do anything which has pleasure as the aim, for this aim is for the most part unseemly and harmful. The qualification as a general rule uh, might allow that there are some pleasures that are acceptable goals in themselves, but Aristoxenus' use of the phrase normally implies that there are a few exceptions. The Pythagoreans think that the pursuit of pleasure is so dangerous that we ought not to risk it, even if there might be rare cases where the pursuit of it might not be harmful, but rather err on the side of caution and never make pleasure a goal. Quoting it again, For nothing so trips us up or throws us into error as this feeling. If our nature is prone to excess and teeming with turbulent desires, it's just too dangerous to make pleasure a goal. The Pythagorean goals, the fine and the advantageous, are commonly recognized goals of human action, as we can see from Aristotle. The problem is that these terms can be cashed out in many ways. The primary goal is the fine, and we have a passage from the precepts that goes some way towards specifying what is meant. Fragment five, which is also on the slide up here, asserts that true love of what is beautiful and fine, philokalia, quotes, is found in our pursuits and in the sciences. The fragment goes on to identify customs and pursuits as well as sciences and practices as what are truly fine rather than the material necessities of life which the many regard as fine. Use of the noun Philokalia in the fourth century texts of other authors such as Xenophon and Isocrates makes clear that it did usually refer to the pursuit of fine material goods such as clothes or weapons. Fragment nine of the precepts identifies a whole list of material goods that are the objects of acquired and superfluous desires rather than natural desires. These include luxurious and costly clothing, bedding, housing, dining services, servants, etc. We are especially to be wary of, quotes, the superfluous and insolent desires that arise among those living in power. These include the desires for a vast variety of foods and drinks, Quotes, for there's nothing so strange that the souls of such people does not eagerly pursue it. These material goods which are considered fine by the multitude are for the Pythagoreans a manifestation of human nature's innate tendency to excess. The objects that are properly fine, customs, pursuits, sciences, and practices, all centrally involve order and structure and impose limits rather than going on without limit. The proper objects of love are, on the one hand, systems of social order, such as the traditional customs of society, but also the ordered pursuits proposed in ways of life, such as that of the precepts themselves. On the other hand, we should love the order found in the sciences, such as the science of harmonics that was developed by Archytas in the 4th century. Now, the connection between what is fine and what has order or structure is also emphasized in the adjective joined to the fine in fragments 5 and 9 that is, the seemly. The Greek word translated seemly, literally, which is euskemon, literally means what has good form. For the Pythagoreans, what is noble, fine, or beautiful is something that has good form, that has order. The connection is to be expected, given the Pythagorean distrust of the excess and chaotic desires of basic human nature. We are supposed to pursue what is ordered and self-controlled in the first place because they are in themselves admirable. Thus, the self-controlled manifestation manifested in engaging in sex infrequently, and only under the proper circumstances, is fine in itself. On the other hand, the first sort of mistaken desire for the Pythagoreans is shamelessness, aske mosune, what lacks proper form, that is, uh, the pursuit of something whose excess marks it as shameful in itself, such as incest, or having sex in public. According to the Pythagoreans, after the pursuit of what is fine, our secondary goal should be what is advantageous and beneficial. These terms admit of a number of possible interpretations. We have seen, however, that fragment 5 makes clear that the things considered advantageous and beneficial by Greek society as a whole, material possessions and power, are not what the Pythagoreans have in mind. An example of what is advantageous might be eating certain sorts of foods. These foods are not fine in themselves, but they are advantageous in that they do not produce a disturbance in the soul. An even more striking example of something that is useful and advantageous is belief in the gods. There is no hint that the Pythagoreans regarded such belief as in itself fine. Rather, belief in the gods is useful for attaining our proper goal, self-control and order. If we think that the gods are paying attention to our actions, we will limit our natural tendency to excess. It thus appears that the advantageous and the beneficial will mostly be cashed out in terms of what produces the most order and self-control in our lives. Anything that allows us to plan and that keeps us from acting haphazardly will also be advantageous since planning will produce the proper order in our lives. Even our friendships and emotions should be planned and not arise haphazardly. Of course, some of what is advantageous and beneficial will be what is necessary for life, basic food, clothing, and shelter. The Pythagoreans, however, argued that these things are, quotes, the spoils of the true love of what is fine and beautiful. There is no explicit argument to support this point, but presumably the idea is that if self-control and order are our primary goals, we will find ourselves needing only very modest food, clothing, and shelter, so modest that they will be easy to obtain, and thus the spoils of our self-controlled life. Now, fragment nine says that determining both what is fine and seemly, and also what is advantageous and beneficial, requires no ordinary judgment. This appeal to expert judgment introduces the strong emphasis on expertise and experience in the precepts. The Pythagoreans discuss the fine, the seemly, the advantageous, and the beneficial at the general level, but discuss these concepts in a series of specific domains. The first example is desire. Above all else, the Pythagoreans emphasize how complicated, poikilon, and manifold, polo e destaton, desire is. The emphasis on complexity is important here, and it will be repeated in a series of other aspects of human life. It is precisely the complexity of desires that brings forth the need for expertise. The Pythagoreans stress in fragment 9 that desire is a need of the greatest care, guarding, and no ordinary training. In order to deal with our desires properly, we must distinguish the natural and appropriate desires from those that are acquired and superfluous. This is a task that is complicated by the fact that desires are, of all things in human life, most prone to advance without limit, so that if we're not careful, we're confronted with an ever-increasing number of them. The problem of diet presents a second example of the role of expertise in human life. This difficulty, in fact, arises out of the problems presented by desire, and once again, complexity plays a central role. The tendency of our desires to grow without limit has led us to eat a seemingly unlimited number of fruits, roots, and meats, and to devise all sorts of ways of preparing them. The Pythagoreans assert that it's difficult to find any animal of land, air, or water that people do not eat. Uh, The problem is that each food produces a distinct condition in us, and human beings display, quote, manifold forms of madness as a result of the disturbances in the soul caused by the huge variety of things that we eat. So you can see that there in in Fragment 9. Therefore, the human tribe understandably displays manifold forms of madness as a result of the disturbances of the soul. For indeed, each of the items of food and drink is responsible for a distinct condition. Wherefore, it is characteristic of great skill to detect and notice what sort and how many things should be employed for nourishment. So the Pythagoreans say, we all notice this with alcohol, but we fail to notice it with, in fact, everything we eat and drink has an effect on our our soul as well. Uh, Once again, we are in need of an expert who has the skill to recognize, quotes, what sort and how many things should be employed for nourishment. Diet, thus, has a central role in Pythagorean ethics. In order to live a self control and ordered life, we must avoid foods that disturb our soul and thus make it hard for us to live in a rational way. Once again, the precepts can here be seen to build on and develop an important theme in the earlier akousmata. One of the central features of the akousmata is dietary taboos, such as the famous ban on eating beans. Uh, Burkert pointed out that many of these dietary taboos have parallels in Greek religion, and that what the accusment had did was take taboos that were applied to specific rituals and apply them to the whole of life. There are no specific dietary taboos in the precepts. And the discussion of diet appears to be based on Greek rational medicine and its understanding of the effect of various foods on human beings. Indeed, concern with diet is an absolutely central feature of Greek medical texts at the time when the precepts were composed. In his other works on the Pythagoreans, Aristoxenus went out of his ways to emphasize that Pythagoras himself did not promulgate some of the most prominent dietary restrictions that appear in the Pythagorean traditions, such as vegetarianism and the ban on beans. We cannot be sure where Aristoxenus got his evidence for these assertions, but it seems quite likely that it would be from the Pythagoreans with whom he associated in his youth, the Pythagoreans who composed the precepts. We can imagine that these Pythagoreans were anxious to claim that Pythagoras did not promote irrational taboos, that he based dietary restrictions on the same sort of rational considerations that govern the view of diet in the precepts. It is striking that some of the assertions about why we might avoid beans, or conversely embrace them, that are found in the tradition have a distinctly rational cast that fit with what is said about diet in the precepts. Thus Aristoxenus reports that Pythagoras, in fact, ate beans because of their laxative properties. Other reports try to explain the ban on beans as arising from the fact that they can cause digestive problems that disturb us. Indeed, the kind of beans in question, fava beans, possess an amino acid that can produce serious allergic reactions in some people. So it may be that the Pythagoreans of the precepts were not anxious to support any universal ban on beans but rather took the view that eaten in the right amounts by some people, such as Pythagoras himself, they aided our digestion, uh, while certain people certainly should avoid them uh, because they produce serious disturbances. Such is the complexity of the human diet and the need for the expertise in this area. A third important and extensive area in which we require expertise is our interaction with other human beings. Our relations with others must be governed by what is appropriate, El Chiron. As in the case of the desire, the Pythagoreans stress that, the practice of what is appropriate is something complex and has many forms. In this case, the complexity arises because of the rich texture of social relationships. In each case, our actions must be based on the specifics of the situation, as should take into account such things as the relative age of the person with whom we're dealing, whether they have a family relationship to us, their status, and whether they are our benefactor. The Pythagoreans suggest that certain sorts of anger may be legitimate if directed by a young person to another young person, but young people must never direct anger towards their elders. Similarly, it may be appropriate to speak frankly towards someone who is our equal, but such blunt speaking is inappropriate when we are speaking to someone with a deserved reputation for nobility. The Pythagoreans go on to say that in determining the appropriate, we need to take into account not just the social relationships just discussed, but also what is timely, what is suitable, and what is fitting given these relationships. Despite the complexity of the subjects, the precepts assert that the appropriate is teachable to a point. Thus we can learn from the expert, but there is also the implication that we need to rely on our own experience. One crucial area of human interaction for the Pythagoreans, friendship, received a separate treatment. It's in fragment 11 of the precepts. For the Pythagoreans, as for the Greeks in general, friendship was a broad concept that included not just relationships between people of basically the same age and status, but also relationships that correspond to some of the four categories mentioned in the last paragraph. Thus, we can be friends with elders, with benefactors, with people who have close ties to our family. There is no explicit emphasis on the... ...present implicitly. The most striking feature of the account of friendship and the precepts is the dominance of the central Pythagorean value order. Thus, uh, if you look at fragment 11 here, they said that in a friendship that was going to be true, as many things as possible should be clearly defined and in accordance with customary practice, and that these things should be well judged and not without plan. Indeed, each of these things should be established as a habit, so that neither does any association arise negligently or without plan, but with reverence, consideration, and proper order. Nor is any emotion aroused without plan, casually and mistakenly. The Pythagorean strategy for ensuring that proper order is preserved in friendship and in emotions in general is to emphasize customary practice and habit. They suppose that the successful friendships are those that follow custom and in which the roles and responsibilities are, quote, clearly defined. The goal is to ensure that as few as possible wounds and ulcerations will arise in friendships. Trust in the friend and the stability of the relationship are paramount. Indeed, no friendship should be renounced because of the change and fortune of our friend, but only if the friend embraces great evil. Thus, the Pythagoreans stress that competition should be removed from friendship since it has the potential to arouse anger and cause a breach between friends. Other conflicts can be avoided if friends follow clearly defined and customary practices. Above all, both members of the friendship need to know how to control their anger and to yield to the other. The younger, in particular, needs to yield to the elder. On the other hand, the elder has to use great tact and show great solicitude in correcting and admonishing the young. So it emerges that friendship, too, is a complex matter that requires considerable planning. Two of the dominant themes in the precepts, the need for expertise and the importance of order, emerge particularly clearly in relation to the most intimate of human relationships, sex and reproduction. Um, hmm. Okay, that's not what I wanted to happen. OK. It left. Now I got it. Now it still wants to come up. OK. OK, I know what happened. OK. So <clears throat> OK, so. The dominant themes of the need for expertise and the importance for order are particularly important in the matter of sex. Sex and reproduction are central to Pythagorean ethics because they regard improper procreation, along with faulty child-rearing, as, "quotes the most powerful and clearest cause of the vice and badness of most men. So that's here in Fragment 9. But human beings pay no attention to their own offspring but procreate without plan and haphazardly doing it altogether offhand, and afterwards rear and educate with a total neglect. For this is the most powerful and clearest cause of the vice and badness of most men. Um, Two crucial restrictions emphasize the order that must be placed on sexuality. First, Precocity should be avoided at all costs, and the young should not engage in sex until age 20, and preferably not even know about it until then. (laughs) This is particularly striking uh, in a society where young girls typically married as young teenagers. Second, even after that age, the individual should rarely engage in sex, and there should be as many hindrances to sex as possible. These heavy restrictions on sexuality are not the result of some irrational prudishness, but flow from the Pythagorean conviction that the circumstances under which procreation occurs have a determining effect on the moral capabilities of the offspring. If we engage in sex when we are too young and hence not fully developed, or when living a disordered life, or particularly when in disordered states such as drunkenness, or when disturbed by the violence that accompanies rape, the seed produced will be similarly disordered and unsound. Moreover, the resulting children will be incapable of the order necessary for a good life. Human procreation is so important that it cannot be left to chance, and more than anything else in life requires forethought and planning. Determining the proper circumstances for procreation is yet another area of complexity in human life which calls for expertise. The Pythagoreans build on a theme in the Greek aristocratic tradition that goes back at least to the sixth century poet Theognis. By, complaining, by comparing human reproduction to the rearing of animals. If dog or bird fanciers take breeding seriously surely it is even more crucial that human beings do so. Thus we must make sure that the parents are suited to one another and that they procreate at the right time and when they're in the right condition. Now there's no indication that the Pythagoreans wanted to turn these decisions over to the state as Plato proposes in the Republic. However, they clearly think that members of the Pythagorean community need to pick their mates carefully or have them picked for them by parents or offspring. Above all, they must ensure that they come to procreation having lived and still living in a temperate and healthy way. The concern with the circumstances under which procreation occurs and their effect on the child has a striking result for Pythagorean attitudes towards abortion. The Pythagoreans of the precepts think that offspring brought about through violence, i.e. rape, uh, or with inappropriate parents, for example, incest, or even when parents are in a serious disordered state, such as drunkenness, will be morally defective because of their constitutions, because their constitutions will reflect the disorder of the circumstances of their procreation. Such offspring will inevitably be evil and cannot be raised. The Pythagoreans stress above all that procreation should not occur in such circumstances, with the result that no abortion would be necessary. But in cases where procreation does occur without plan and haphazardly, they advocated abortion. Skip that. We must now face a question which has been lurking in the previous discussions of the complexity of many aspects of human life and the corresponding need for an expert. How are we to identify the expert? One of the surviving fragments of the precepts addresses just this question. Fragment nine begins by discussing which opinion should be heeded and which not. The Pythagoreans say that, "quotes it is foolish to heed every opinion and the opinion of every person and especially to heed the opinion that arises among the many. On the other hand, we will never learn anything if we reject every opinion. If we lack knowledge, we must learn from those who have knowledge, and thus heed the opinion of the one who knows. Up to this point, what has been said is very similar to what is said in a famous passage of Plato's Crito. In that passage, Socrates argues that in deciding whether he should try to escape from prison, they should not heed the opinions of all men, but rather the opinions of some and not others. If we were athletes, we would not consider the opinion of every person, but only the opinion of the one who knows, the expert, in this case, the athletic trainer. Similarly, in the case of whether it's right or wrong to escape from prison, we should not consider the opinion of the multitude rather than the one of the one who knows. However, when it comes to identifying the person who knows, Plato and the Pythagorean Park Company. In the case of the Crito, no expert is identified, but the dialogue proceeds on the assumption that the best they can do is to apply the elenchus to the situation. That is to examine by argument the position that Socrates has adopted now and in the past and how we should live our lives and how that relates to our present circumstances. The implication is that the one who knows is the one whose argument can survive, the elenchus. Socrates clearly asserts that he is someone who always follows the argument that appears best to him upon reflection. There is nothing like this in the precepts. There is no appeal to what rational argument shows to be best. Instead, we are told that the young, if they are going to be saved, must pay attention to, quotes, the opinions of their elders and those who have lived nobly. It seems likely that these two conditions are to be taken together. In general, we are to regard our elders as the experts, But even here, we should not follow the opinion of the majority of our elders, but instead follow the opinion of those among our elders who have lived nobly. That is, those who lies who have been recognized as exemplary. There's an obvious difficulty here, since we are left with the problem of determining what counts as living nobly. The precepts provide no clear guidance, but the idea is probably that the young should not follow the lead of all the elders in their city-state, but should rather follow the opinions of senior members of the Pythagorean community who are recognized within that community as having lived a particularly fine life. Those who have lived nobly may thus be primarily those who followed the Pythagorean way of life. However, the interest of Pythagoreans such as the Cacrides in the life of Socrates, at least in Plato's depiction of the Phaedo, suggests that the Pythagoreans may have recognized noble lives outside of their own circle. One would expect that the precepts themselves were regarded as embodying the expertise of these leaders of the Pythagorean community, and it is likely that they were regarded as embodying the essential principles of Pythagoras himself. However, the precepts cannot be the final guide on how to act because they provide general guidelines and rules but do not deal with specific situations. The earlier kuzmeto do give very specific ideas on a number of points. For example, what food should not be eaten? Beans. Or what shoes should be put on first? The right. Uh, Nowhere in the precepts do we find advice at this level of specificity. The precepts tell us that every food has a specific effect on us, and that what we eat is crucial, but they do not tell us the effect of each food or what we should, in fact, eat for breakfast. They tell us the general factors that we need to take into account in dealing with other people, that is their family relationship to us, their age in relation to us, whether they're benefactors or not, and so on. But they do not tell us what to do in specific situations that we confront. Why do the precepts do not give such specific why do the precepts not give such specific advice? It would appear to be because the Pythagoreans of the late fifth and early fourth century had come to recognize that what needs to be done in a specific situation depends on too many factors unique to the situation for it to be possible to formulate rules for the specific situation in advance. We know that we should, in general, eat foods that foster tranquility, but what foods those are depends on the specific constitution and state of health of the individuals involved, as well as perhaps the climate and environment in which they live. The complexity that leads to the need for an expert does away with the hope of any set, any simple set of rules to fit all situations. Thus, the precepts do not provide detailed rules for living our lives, as the Akuzmete did. Instead, they set forth the general principles that should guide the individual decisions we make and identify the factors that need to be taken into account in applying those principles. Our final decision on what to do will be determined by how we apply the principles in light of the relevant factors. One might think that the final factor in arriving at a decision is the reasoning of the individual involved, and this is surely true to a degree. However, given the heavily hierarchical nature of the Pythagorean community, as revealed in the precepts, it is clear that a large role would be played by the senior members of the Pythagorean community. The precepts specifically tell us that the role of the old men is to give, quotes, counsel with all of their knowledge. Elsewhere, the precepts stress that such advice must be given with much tact. So the Pythagoreans do not assert that the young should think for themselves, Rather, we should study the precepts and learn the basic principles and relevant factors, but in making actual decisions should follow the advice of senior members of the community. After years of studying the advice of elders in specific situations, the individual will, in old age, become sufficiently experienced to make his or own decisions and to guide the young in turn. Now, at this point, almost all of the main features of the Pythagorean ethical system and the precept have been considered only one central topic remains, luck. We might initially wonder why the Pythagoreans would discuss luck when setting out their way of life in the precepts. Luck seems to be something that happens to us rather than something that we can incorporate into our way of life. The Pythagoreans did discuss luck in part precisely because it is something not in our control. As we have seen, the Pythagoreans thought our lives should be ordered and governed by careful planning. They clearly suppose that we are largely in control of our lives and that by following the precepts we can live a better life. They were realistic enough to recognize, however, that good planning does not always lead to good results and that sometimes people who do not plan are successful. Moreover, they recognized that some people who tried to follow the guidance of the precepts nonetheless were unable to live an ordered life. These cases in which the degree of planning and effort do not produce the expected result were explained by the Pythagoreans as the result of luck. The precepts envisage two different situations in which luck is involved in human life, and accordingly distinguish two sorts of luck: divine luck and inborn luck. The first situation, in the first situation, one individual plans carefully and takes all the correct precautions, and still fails. On the other hand, another individual does not plan, does not take correct correct precautions, and still succeeds. The precepts say that in these cases, luck is something imposed from outside, since the result is contrary to what we would expect from the factors internal to the situation. The Pythagoreans call this divine luck, since they think that in these cases, inspiration arises from some divinity, leading to better or worse than expected results. This conception of the divine is very much in accord with early Greek presentations of the divine. For example, the Homeric hero can often be found blaming a god or a goddess when he is thwarted in battle despite having fought well. Thus Menelaus blames Zeus when his sword breaks when he's about to kill Paris in their one-on-one battle in book three of the Iliad. Aristotle refers to this sort of luck in the Eudemian ethics but refuses to ascribe it to the gods on the grounds that the gods would not reward those who do not plan properly and frustrate those who do. It is not clear how the Pythagoreans would respond to Aristotle's critique. The precepts explicitly argue that human beings should believe that the gods exist and pay attention to human affairs so that there will be a check on our innate insolence. This view presupposes Aristotle's view of the gods, that is, that they punish the bad behavior produced by our natural insolence and reward our attempts to reign in that insolence. If we believe that the gods do not pay any attention to our efforts to plan our lives in accordance with reason, and even sometimes reward those who follow their unbridled insolence, it would appear that there is little reason to follow the elaborate code of life. Perhaps the Pythagoreans are conceding that in some cases, for reasons that are unclear, the gods do not reward behavior that we would expect while at the same time arguing that it is beneficial for us to believe that in most cases, the gods do pay attention uh, pay attention to and reward good behavior so that we will check our natural insolence. As we have seen, divine luck is conceived of as imposed from outside. The second sort of luck, inborn luck, comes from within us, as its name suggests. The Pythagoreans clearly had experience in teaching a wide range of students, and they observed that, quotes, Some people are born gifted, and with the ability to hit the mark, while others are born dull, so that their thoughts is never born towards the target, but is always confused. Some people are just born with souls that are more orderly, and others with souls that are more turbulent. The latter will be less able to hit the mark in whatever they attempt. As we have seen, the Pythagoreans regarded human desire and human interactions with others as a very complex and in need of great expertise, Those born with orderly souls have a much greater chance of navigating these complexities than those beset by turbulence. Inborn luck is thus a sort of natural endowment, similar to the modern idea of one's genetic makeup. One crucial difference between the Pythagoreans and modern genetics, however, is that while the Pythagoreans agree that the child's natural temperament is derived from the parents, what the child inherits from them is not a strict matter of genes that they in turn inherited from their parents, but rather depends directly on how the parents lived their lives. If the parents lived an ordered and temperate life, and most importantly, if they conceive the child when engaging in orderly and temperate intercourse, the child will have an orderly soul. If, on the other hand, the parents are drunk or out of control in intercourse, the child will have a turbulent soul that is never able to hit the mark. Unlike divine luck, inborn luck is to some extent under human control. It is out of the control of the individual who has it, but it is in the control of the parents who conceive the child. Thus the Pythagoreans thought that the proper procreation was absolutely crucial to the moral development of the child and to the moral health of the community. The precepts assert that procreating and educating children haphazardly and without plan is the most powerful cause of vice and badness, as we've seen before. As we have seen, the Pythagoreans even favored abortion of fetuses that were begotten in bad circumstances because the children they develop into will inevitably have this bad sort of inborn luck that makes them unable to live a moral life. This completes my overview of the ethical system of the Pythagorean precepts. It raises important questions about the relation between the precepts and both earlier Pythagorean ethics and the development of Greek ethics as a whole? We can go into these questions in the discussion period. I will conclude with a brief dogmatic statement of their position in the history of Greek ethics. I would argue that the precepts are more systematic, more reflective, and make a greater use of argument than the efforts in ethics of any of the Sophocs or pre-Socratics apart from Democritus. On the other hand, they do not constitute a treatise in ethical theory per se. They set out rules that are supposed to govern our life rather than providing a complete account of the theoretical foundations of that life. Nor can they be said to to have anticipated the founding of philosophical ethics by Socrates. They do not carry out a rigorous evaluation of common assumptions about morality. And they do not fully embrace rational argument as the ultimate arbiter in ethical matters. The precepts are best understood as a parallel of development to the ethics of Democritus and Socrates. They are more systematic than Democritus' ethical maxims, but do not make some crucial distinctions as clearly as Democritus does. For example, the distinction between goods of the body and goods of the soul. Or identify a central goal for all of our actions, as Democritus does. They have engaged with the arguments of the sophists, as did Socrates, and have been influenced by them, particularly in coming to recognize the complexity of the circumstances in which ethical decisions are made. A number of their specific suggestions about how to live our lives are similar to, and may have influenced ideas of Plato and Aristotle. For all their rationality, however, the precepts crucially differ from Socrates and most Greek philosophy after him, in putting the emphasis on the value of authority and expertise rather than on the best argument. The emphasis on his expertise and the appeal to an authority figure who has the expertise to guide our lives is, of course, not surprising in Pythagoreanism, which is ultimately based on the authority of the master Pythagoras. Thank you.
0: The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo underscore Purdue.